0: Hey, it's Ryan Rossillo. I'm the host of the Ryan Rossillo podcast at The Ringer. We are a sports show, but we do it a little differently because we want to cut through all of the nonsense and try to figure out what's really happening and give you those bigger picture observations. Do a lot of NFL, a lot of NBA, and of course, college football. Also have a great guest lineup, a lot of athletes, front office guys. And even we do some actors and writers from famous TV shows and movies, plus our life advice segment at the end of every show. So make sure you follow The Ryan Rossillo Show on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown, as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan... The final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. It is Wednesday, January 25th. Coming at you live, recording this at the Sundance Film Festival. It's really the dream of every young filmmaker. You scrape together enough money for your first movie, gets into Sundance, you show up, it plays through the roof, there's an all-night bidding war, and boom... You sell your first movie to a deep-pocketed distributor and launch your directing career. It's happened to everyone from Ryan Johnson to Ryan Coogler, Chloe Zhao, Damien Chazelle. Hundreds of filmmakers have come to Sundance and left major talents. Precious, Napoleon Dynamite, Little Miss Sunshine, more recently Palm Springs, and last year's Best Picture winner, Coda, all sold at Sundance for big numbers. But over the past decade or so, that dream has begun shifting a bit. When I first started coming to Sundance in the mid-2000s, the goal was to convince a Fox Searchlight or Paramount Vantage or another of the big specialty divisions of the major studios to pick up your Sundance movie, release it in theaters, hopefully get some awards buzz, and turn it into a major box office hit. These days, the biggest Sundance buyers are streamers. Netflix, we saw this past weekend, bought a movie called Fair Play, kind of modern Fatal Attraction. It premiered on Friday, and by Monday, there was a sale at a reported $20 million, although I've heard it's a little less than that. The Sundance market, as it's called, is still alive and well. It's just different than it used to be, and in many ways, more challenging. One constant over the past 40 years of the festival has been the presence of John Sloss. I've known John for years. He's a lawyer, a dealmaker, media advisor in the indie space, a manager, to filmmakers. He's produced movies like Boyhood, the 2014 Best Picture nominee. And he and his company, Synetic Media, have generally been in the middle of some of the biggest Sundance sales in the festival's history. He's pretty outspoken. He tells a great story about escaping to the middle of a snowy field amid the bidding war for Little Miss Sunshine back in 2006, and he's concerned about certain areas of the film business these days. He actually says he wouldn't invest in a company doing scripted independent dramas right now. It's pretty surprising coming from a guy who often sells these movies. So I wanted to have him in today to have a conversation about the changing Sundance deal market whether it's time to freak out about the future of these challenging art house movies, and whether that Sundance dream is still alive. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with John Sloss, lawyer, dealmaker, manager, media advisor, all-around man about Sundance. You sold more movies
1: at Sundance than anyone, right? I think I've been doing it longer, and yes, I think by this point, I've sold more movies than anyone at Sundance. Uh, that's impressive. Yeah,
0: we won't go into like the stories of you know Sundance in the 80s, but I'm sure, there was, sure it was wild. Pretty, uh, pretty nutty. So you and others are responsible for this whole narrative that we are all taught about Sundance, which is the dream, that you can be a nobody filmmaker, you can scrape together the cash to make your movie bring it to Sundance, gets in, and you take it to a screening, bidding war all night, and all of a sudden you are Ryan Coogler or Damien Chazelle or Chloe Zhao or Ryan Johnson. Is that dream still alive?
1: Yes. Uh, But it's different. Sundance, more than any other festival, is a festival of discovery, and it's remained very true to it to that aspect of itself with all the ambush marketing around the periphery over the years at the core, it's very much the same festival. So the curation is still strong. That's basically what it is. Yes. With all the politics
0: that goes into the selection of the, of the lineup and all of the issues that they have around representation and, you know, doing an agent a favor, they still manage to get a top quality lineup every year.
1: I agree with that. You do. That is, yes, I do. I would back that statement.
0: I've seen too many bad Sundance movies to fully agree with you, but I will say, especially on the doc side, the doc side, you will never see better films than you will. Uh, on Sundance. This
1: is by far the best doc festival in the world, and it's a it, and it's a festival where docs at, have at least parody with scripted films, right. and there's no other elite festival in the world that's even close to that.
0: Yeah. So, having said that, how has that Sundance dream? changed, especially given the market and post pandemic and this is the first festival back after three years. So you know how has how have you noticed that dream changing?
1: Well, it's we're still sort of figuring out what the lasting effects of the pandemic are. It, you know, this is the first in-person festival in three years at Sundance. Um, and it's uh, I think it's been affected more than anything. By the theatrical marketplace, right. because the streamers—it's interesting because the the economy there is that the streamers are interested in the documentaries and the documentary equivalent of the Discovery scripted films, but they're much less interested in those Discovery scripted films. Right
0: for for theatrical, especially all those filmmakers I mentioned, their films that went to Sundance scored a theatrical deal and were hits in yeah, theaters, yeah. pretty much. And they've spawned theatrical film careers. Well, well,
1: that's what I'm saying. I'm saying the streamers are much less interested in those films. And the theatrical all rights distributors have been challenged to get those audiences back to the theaters.
0: And you're seeing that in the deal market. They're less willing to take a chance on a Sundance movie that would have previously been a theatrical play because they know theatrical is so challenged.
1: That's exactly right. and Which is why... Ever adaptable, we have leaned into the documentary market, at least here at this festival. Right,
0: because you can still get a number for those movies, even though they are streaming plays. I mean, we sold Summer of Soul for $15 million. And that went to Searchlight that put it out on Hulu.
1: It really went to to Onyx, Mm -hmm. which Which is is another division of Disney. Initiative in Disney for Searchlight and Hulu. Mm -hmm. Um, But yes, it did not have a robust theatrical and play. it won the
0: oscar which is all you know the big goal of all these documentary films that it
1: is disproportionately important is
0: it true that netflix paid 20 million dollars for that documentary here about the guy who holds his breath the people who hold their breath scuba diving uh he, they he, they didn't buy it here no they bought it before but 20 million for a doc is that a real thing
1: you know i would i would argue it's hard because netflix is still a little bit of a black box from mm-hmm. a data sharing standpoint but um when you press these streamers to say, uh, you know, are the eyeballs there for docs to justify those kind of numbers? Routinely, they won't give you a robust yes, but they won't deny it.
0: Interesting. Well, especially with Netflix, they have the relationship with the Obamas, and they can slap their name on it, and then they can get people to see it because of that. They've done that a number and of Harry times. And Harry and Meghan. And Harry and Meghan. Are they putting their name on Docs? They put
1: their, they put their name on a doc series uh, that I just did, yeah. Oh,
0: interesting. What Live, was it called?
1: It's called Live to Lead.
0: Interesting. I don't know that that will hold the same sway with Oscar voters as the Obamas. Well, it's a
1: series. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, well, there you go. Uh, yeah, th- yeah, we sold Descendant last year to Higher Brown, which is the Obamas company. Right.
0: And that is currently on Netflix. I watched that. It's good. It's very good. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So the, let's get back a little bit to the, the Sundance dream for filmmakers. You man, you must manage expectations a lot. When you take on a client and bring their film to Sundance, you must say, you know, listen, this is not going to be Little Miss Sunshine. I'm not going to be in the middle of a field, you know, taking call after call, trying to, you know, bid up the price to 20
1: million. Hiding out at the Ruby Tuesdays by the interstate. Right. Um, this is
0: yes. this is more likely in this market. You're going to go. The goal is a streamer will be interested. Maybe a couple million. You know, you'll make your money back, and the film will get a release.
1: Yeah. Uh, I am famously bad at under promising and over delivering. I, I I find that really annoying. So I tend to get hyped myself. Really. Because, uh, I, I I'm from a family of salesmen, and it's. Uh, <laughs> So then, what happens
0: when you're like, I
1: I don't really manage expectations. It's Friday of
0: the festival. You haven't sold, and the filmmakers uh, freaking out.
1: Well, you know, I mean, look at I was I was there during the day uh, and probably a central figure in it when you could create urgency and you could make deals overnight, like Little Miss Sunshine Mm -hmm. uh, and even Precious more recently, and uh, and you know, and other films. But um, the market has become elongated. It just has. It, ha- it has. What does that
0: mean? Meaning, there's no, there's no all night bidding war. It's just. I mean,
1: it's unusual. Right. Uh, I, I think fair play was the closest thing to it. Yeah, we just year.
0: saw this festival that uh, film, uh, Fair Play from. Uh, is it a first time filmmaker? It is Chloe first DeMond? time. I,
1: I believe she's a first time. And
0: woman. with Alden Ehrenreich and uh, Phoebe. But it, Phoebe it, it, is her name.
1: It did have. Look at Craig. Ryan. Craig. It did have Ryan Johnson's company behind.
0: Oh, it, it did. Oh, okay, well, yeah. good for that. But my point is, this movie, Fair Play, got a huge response in its opening night screening, Netflix came in, bid, you know, whatever number you want to believe, 15 to $20 million, got the film. That's the success story. That is a real filmmaker. Now, will that filmmaker get the same bump in her career without a theatrical release? That's a whole separate conversation.
1: It is. It is. Uh, There will invariably be more eyeballs on that film than there would have been with a traditional theatrical release. But what you say is is a real possibility that 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 because it's a closed circuit unit, um, you know, just for subscribers. Right, there's less outward promotion. I mean. Netflix does a very good job of creating awareness, you know, they buy a lot of billboards and uh, in LA and New York. And and the area and the area code of the where the director lives. Right,
0: exactly. So you see it on the way to the market every day. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and if they choose if they anoint your movie an awards movie, they will promote the crap out of it. They're, they they they're, spend money on documentaries to promote them like you've never seen, but only a small few that they think
1: will win awards. Yes they yeah they're very good at focusing on the the good chances that they have um can you and- work
0: that into deals can you say yes? We will sell yeah, to you. But yes. We want a three million dollar Oscar campaign.
1: Yes, you can. You can't. You can't always do it. And there, there's as we, as you know, you're trained as a lawyer. There's a, there's weasel language often that allows them if they're just not feeling it or right. if they're not getting traction. Good faith effort. Yeah.
0: Best 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 effort. Best effort makes yeah. everyone nervous. Right. Exactly. Um, all right. So you were on the IndieWire podcast recently, and you said something very interesting that caught my ear. You said um, you wouldn't be an investor right now in a scripted drama movie company you don't know how to make money there
1: i do i may have said that just to clarify it i would uh, um scripted i'm i i work in scripted movies Mm -hmm. all day every day and um they are still being made it's really i'm talking about the scripted movies that are first-time films for sundance and it was really set in the context so budgets under 10 million dollars budgets under under 2 million. With movies that are that aren't uh, a tried and true genre or don't have sort of bankable names. Right. So uh, that are completely execution dependent
0: or Fruitvale station or these kinds of movies that made careers for these filmmakers, you would not invest in those kinds of movies now.
1: Um, I mean, look at if I knew uh, I, when I saw Brick, I knew what it was, mm-hmm. uh, and I went all in, for, and I sold it, and I went all in for it. Uh, if I saw, uh, if I knew that Ryan Johnson had that promise, or uh, mm-hmm. then possibly I would make the exception for that. But the um, the thing is, because the the theatrical is so uncertain now, and because the streamers are not looking for these kinds of first-time films without stars, right. typically, uh, it is a tough business decision for an investor, for for first-time filmmakers. And uh, I, I mentioned in the podcast uh, some... Some fixes to to the investment structure that could possibly because when you're investing in a first time film, you're not really investing in the film. You're investing in the filmmaker. Mm-hmm. So if there was a a way to get a carried interest sure. in the work of that filmmaker,
0: we got your uh, next three.
1: Yeah, or, or even I, I analogize it to NFT smart contracts, where the filmmaker goes on. You know, like Colin Trevorrow would do Safety Not Guaranteed, and then Jurassic Park Three or whatever he did. Right. Um, uh, you have a carried interest to the extent you don't recoup off of the independent film to what they get paid for a certain amount of time for these other films was because oh, their career's blowing up.
0: Yeah. So if you get if you invest in whiplash, you get La La Land.
1: You don't get La La Land. You, you get, get you get a revenue stream from what <laughs> Damien Chazelle gets from which, La that La movie,
0: Land. made almost five hundred million dollars. So I'm imagining his revenue yeah, is decent. I
1: mean, I mean I, this is sort of a downside protection thing. This isn't a way to sort of yep. cash in, but it's a it's a way to bring rationality to for first time investors, so that it's not just philanthropy,
0: right? And you also potentially start that relationship that can last an entire career, which I think is I mean, right. You did that with Richard Linklater,
1: correct? Well, I didn't, I didn't invest in him, but it's funny because I said- But you represented him from the beginning. I did. And I said to him, I said, if I came to you on Slacker and said, I will fund this film all of $23,000 on it, uh, if you'll give me 10% of a carried interest in what you earn for the next five years And Dazed and Confused and Before Sunrise, and he goes, I would have done that in a second.
0: Hmm. And then, you know, 25 years later, you're a producer on Boyhood, which in my opinion, should have won the Oscar that year please
1: it's everyone's <laughs> opinion we just they don't give an oscar to the best film they give it to the best campaign and uh we were it's out, a we, mix but we I were agree. outgamed by nancy utley uh, oh, and she so. even she would admit that at, now, uh, at the woman, she
0: ran searchlight and they had a very good film that year as well the guillermo del toro film
1: <laughs> <That laughs> uh, No, right. it, 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 it was that was uh, shape of water wasn't it no no birdman. it was birdman. oh that was the birdman year. yeah it was oh, in Eritu.
0: Int- right it was in Uritu. i like that movie too
1: yeah, but next to Boyhood,
0: Boyhood was, I think, more of an accomplishment. Like, it's just an amazing thing to watch someone age on screen naturally like that. I mean, these days we did a whole show about it last week. You could do that, but with computers. Yeah, I'm right. But that. um, you know, but it, I it was it was great. I love that movie. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki.
1: So
0: you kind of have a unique role in that you are selling films, you're also managing filmmakers, you also consult for some of the companies that are buying these films. How do you deal with your role in all different <laughs> aspects of the Deal equation. Well sometimes I, you're
1: selling to yourself. I don't deal with it the way Alan Grubman once said, no conflict, no interest. Right. Well, um, clearly
0: there are conflicts sometimes. But yeah,
1: I mean, conflicts, people people sort of react reflexively about conflicts. But you know, as a lawyer, mm-hmm. as long as it's disclosed and waived, uh, it's it's not necessarily a big deal. If if you're inherently, you know, I mean, honest is a is a charged words, but principled, and you're dealing with intelligent individuals and they have all the information, then sometimes there's not enough at play in a specific deal to have each person have their own representation. And the deal's best served by one group or person putting it together. And, we and often you're are often in dealing
0: with the same people on the other side anyways.
1: Yes. <laughs> and hopefully- It's a very our, small world. Hopefully our reputation, you know, speaks in our favor. Right.
0: You can fuck someone over once and then they don't forget.
1: I did get sued by Harvey uh for precious, which was interesting. Oh,
0: right. I remember that. I covered that. So you what was his argument there? You, his
1: argument, his argument basically, the, he has the greatest lawyers in the world. David Boy's. Uh uh, his, well, not
0: great. He's currently in prison for the rest of his life, but so not great, not the greatest lawyer. Yeah, well, <laughs> a good lawyer
1: knows when to call it a day. Yeah. Yes. Uh uh yes. Uh he his argument was that because we, he sent an offer and we said, um, we, we will discuss this with our clients and get back to you. And we, and our, our, our sign off at the end was best. And they, they made the argument that by signing an email with the word best, it indicated a predisposition to enter into a contract. That
0: is an enforceable contract. The word best. And, and it didn't As work. the
1: judge said, when he, when he dismissed it out of hand, the argument strained credulity
0: (laughs) yeah and that's probably not even nearly the weirdest or craziest harvey weinstein lawsuit over a movie so i've covered a lot of those no so separate topic here you've got a hot film let's say and you've got two offers on the table same money one is a streamer one is a theatrical release which one do you pick these days
1: I mean, it might surprise you to hear, but I work for the filmmaker. So my job is to basically, and I really, uh, I, I, this is a controversial statement. A little bit, I, I, I always tell my people: we're not really selling p- films to acquisitions people. We're selling films to the marketing people because they've got it's their job to get it out in the world. They're they're sort of the the broker, the middleman. Um, so honestly, I would sit my filmmaker down with each company. I would say, okay, you've expressed interest in our film uh we've put a year or two into it what are you going to do to justify uh from a marketing standpoint what we've created
0: and in those meetings what's effective what what things that they say are effective to you
1: i mean passion is always the most mm-hmm. effective but part. how do they
0: i mean everybody is going to be nice is it the number of people they bring to the meeting is it the specifics they can tell you we will do this 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 or is it just a feeling
1: yeah i mean netflix is famous for showing up like the day after they see a film with like 10 comps for key art and things like that. Uh, So they have a poster already to show you. That's a little stunty for me. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You know, and as you say, everyone's nice. There's a difference between being nice and being passionate and smart. Mm -hmm. And um, if you've really given a film some thought, you know, each film, there is a best way to market each film. A film is unique and there are specific audiences for it. And there are specific ways to, to sell it to critics and to the public. And, um, and there, yes, there are financial commitments. That's obviously very important. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, you know, streamers in some ways get a bad rap. I mean, I wish they were um, more transparent with their data, But but you're invariably going to have that film seen by more people in Netflix than you will with a platform theatrical release.
0: And do most of your clients agree with that and want that? Or do they still hold out for that dream of turning their movie into the next brick or... Fruit bale station. You
1: know, it's horses for courses. It, it is some filmmakers feel some ways; others feel. I think. I think increasingly, uh, filmmakers uh, are less absolutely wedded to the theatrical experience.
0: And is it just the number?
1: They it's, want not, to re- it's not just the number. I mean, I think everything I've said for yeah, the last yeah. three minutes would yeah, indicate yeah. that it's not.
0: So, you, you, how often do you represent filmmakers who pass on more money?
1: Percentage. Um, only once. No, <laughs> really? No, I mean, I don't, I don't work with them after that. Oh, that's, that's a, funny. It's a joke. Um, uh, yeah, uh, the uh, it, it's unusual. Yes, I mean, that is a very important factor.
0: Right. Um, five years, what does the Sundance Film Festival look like? And are we still talking about it as the curation monster that it is?
1: I mean, the the pandemic really... Put a focus on longer narratives uh, you know in terms of episodic limited episodic stuff, and i festivals have been trying to get their head around that um, it's they, still,
0: they program television now yeah I mean series it's still pretty peripheral, yeah
1: um, I think documentaries will still be just as important as features I'm hoping that the theatrical You know, distributors who've stayed in business and even flourished in the case of A24 and Neon and some of the old Mm warhorses, or or at least survived during the pandemic, really come back strong. And I'd love to see a world, you know, as I I also said, I I don't know if this is controversial or not, but but it surprises everybody. When you look at 2023 and you look at the aggregate content budgets of the seven streamers, it it really comes out to about 120 billion dollars, and that is just a mind numbing number.
0: Yeah, but they're not giving that money to you. They're giving 200 million dollars to the Russo brothers to make whatever nonsense. They, that they, was. they,
1: they well, <laughs> I like the Russo brothers, but uh, <laughs> uh, if uh, yes, they they routinely will pay 200 million dollars for what historically had been a 50 to 70 million dollar film because they have to spend that money. Uh, I I'd like to think they're giving some of it to me, um,
0: <laughs> but uh, well, I imagine the price for Descendant was not cheap.
1: You have a vivid imagination, um, and but it wasn't. You're know, correct. Uh, the um, but but if the if the all rights distributors come back, and the um, the uh, streamers stay in this sort of arms race to just be a surviving global entity, which is mm-hmm. really what this is.
0: Yeah, but they've had pullbacks at least on the market front. I mean, these companies are worth half what they were. Yeah, but what's
1: ago. the correlation between that? What they, well, that's the question. Really, is it's there really a correlation? about the subs and the and the churn. That and it's no, about. it's
0: about the profitability these days as well. So that's the question: Is from are a, they going to pull back
1: from a stock standpoint? Listen, this is a race where pulling back isn't really going to work for you because you have to, in five to seven years, e- either be bought, be the surviving entity that's one of the five global subscri- you know streamers mm-hmm. that people subscribe to, or go out of business. So, they can talk about pulling back. They can talk about serving, you know, their shareholders, or you know what what uh, Warner Discovery is doing, and what Netflix, you know, did in terms of a correction. But I don't really think that's what it's about. I think that's sort of a misdirect.
0: Well, and they can continue to pay twenty million dollars for the films by your clients.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> one, one,
0: one would certainly hope. All right, John Sloss, thanks for joining us. Appreciate the time. Uh, my pleasure, Matt. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Greg, did you watch any of the Ticketmaster Taylor Swift hearings yesterday in the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee?
2: I did not watch any of it live. Did you catch that? No. However, I saw all of the senators making their Taylor Swift puns, which went viral.
0: It was so cringeworthy. Just awful. Like, you want to just jump out the window. The, Senator Richard Blumenthal, Democrat <laughs> of Connecticut, said... And I'm quoting here, Ticketmaster ought to look
2: in the mirror and say, I'm the problem. It's me. Oh. <laughs> there were a lot of good puns. There was like five of them and it spanned her entire career. It was as yes. recent as her, her newest album and it went all the way back to kind of her OG days. Why were they doing this?
0: Because it's all for the cameras. Listen, they probably went to their junior staffers and said, give me a, a compendium. Give me your best Taylor Swift quote. This was all, this here, and this is actually my prediction. I, my prediction is this goes nowhere. I don't think that they will actually follow up on Ticketmaster at all because nobody has done anything about Ticketmaster since it merged with Live Nation in 2010. But they do this so that they can win some points. I mean, you look at this Senator, Marsha Blackburn. She's literally screaming at the president of Live Nation in this hearing and saying how awful it is that they had bots attacking these uh, these (laughs) ticket buyers. It's for the cameras. Everybody likes Taylor Swift. Everybody wants to get tickets. They didn't get tickets. And now their congressman or their senator is standing up for them in front of the CEO or the president of
2: Ticketmaster. Interesting.
0: We've discussed it on the show. We've had Lucas and I discussing this. And there are some serious antitrust issues with how Ticketmaster and Live Nation operate. I mean, it's, it's bizarre that the most dominant... Concert promoter can own the most dominant ticket seller. And yes, we've discussed it. They could do compete in different areas, but big picture, it just has always kind of smelled bad. And yeah. Ticketmaster is just one of those companies that everybody kind of hates. <laughs> um, so it makes sense that this would happen in Congress. This is just a wrist slapping, nothing's gonna happen.
2: But what you and Lucas outlined, though, Ticketmaster is not setting the price. That is still Taylor Swift. It's yes, Ticketmaster yes, is yes. in charge of the selling of the tickets. That's all. Yes.
0: And the fees, you know, everyone hates the fees. And that the, the, the venues are mostly responsible for the fees being so high. It's just, it, it all contributes to a stink around buying tickets for events. And that's what these... Elected representatives are jumping on because they know, I mean, this was bipartisan. That's the crazy thing. You had Democrats and Republicans who never agree on these committees. They were all jumping in and attacking. So it, it, it's, you know, if they're if this does move forward, the only reason is because it's so bipartisan. Um, but I am just so cynical about whether they're going to do anything. They got their political points. They got on the local news. They quoted Taylor Swift and everybody went viral with it. So they're on the right side of this issue. And I just don't think anything's going to happen. I should also say that if this were ever to go anywhere, it would probably be during the Biden administration because he has shown a willingness to go after these large antitrust cases. I mean, they just the Justice Department just sued Google. Google. Uh, their the Biden administration stepped in to block a merger of two publishing houses on antitrust grounds. So there is appetite there, increased appetite than maybe you know four or five years ago. But I still just don't think that anyone has the fortitude to go after Ticketmaster like this.
2: This was my favorite old person trying to relate to young people pun since Hillary Clinton said Pokemon go to the polls. Nice. That was the best one. That's still top. That's still first of the last ten years. Did that was that a formative moment in your upbringing? When did that happen? I guess when she was running, what twenty sixteen? Sure. That was just elite in the in the group chat for it, everybody. It blew my your age. mind.
0: It did, did it did it it won over hearts and minds of the Pokemon generation.
2: It did. It made all of us <laughs> Pokemon go
0: to the polls. Right. All right. That's the show for today. I want to thank John Sloss for coming on. I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck. I want to thank Craig's handwarming system that he's got going with his hand warmers and i want to thank you we'll see you tomorrow those hand warmers are a revelation nobody
2: uses those enough (laughs) this episode is brought to you by state farm